Welcome to the Capital Insight Podcast with Jenny Casson and Michelle Timish, two capital raising experts on a mission to demystify and equify the world of investment for entrepreneurs and investors alike. Listen in as they sit down with fundraising veterans and share with you the success stories and cautionary tales of outside the box capital raising. This is Capital Insight. Hello, this is Jenny Casson. Welcome to the Capital Insight Podcast. We're really excited today, Michelle and I, to have a wonderful guest, Lina Green. Lina Green is someone that I met through Social Venture Circle. She's both an entrepreneur and an investor and has just a really fascinating story. So Lina, we would just love to hear, you know, how did you come to do the work that you're doing and what have you learned over the years as you've been in this space of investing outside the box and doing socially conscious business? Thank you, Jenny. I've always been a fan of yours as well. So thank you for inviting me to speak and share my story. Um, I was born and raised in Singapore. And, and while coming from humble beginnings, uh, was also fortunate to have a very unique background of having studied overseas. And I've worked in law, business and tech over a span of 30 years in actually many different countries. Um, it was really my experiences overseas more than growing up here that exposed me to entrepreneurship. So when I returned in Singapore in the early 90s, I decided to start up my own tech consultancy business. Uh, and it was, you know, relatively easy for me to do so having worked overseas, right? And then later, I went on to start my own tech business, which I ran for almost 10 years before selling it in 2006. Um, so having sold my business, I actually was in a position to start dabbling with investing. So I started investing in other small businesses and pretty much that's how I got started on investing generally. But social impact investing, that path really started in 2008 after I read Professor Mohammed Yunus's book, Creating a World Without Poverty, where he really challenged us to put our money to ending poverty in this world. So that's when I started really getting interested and I wanted to start a fund in 2008. And then we got hit with the financial crash. So kind of had to put that a little bit on hold. Um, and then during that period, I actually lost two really good friends of mine. Um, but I managed to spend the last 10 days of their lives as they transitioned to the other world. And it really started making me think a lot about what was important in life. Um, so after many years, I finally had the opportunity and started Angels of Impact in 2016, which invests in support in women and Indigenous-led community-based enterprises. So that's kind of in a nutshell, my journey and my background. Wow, that's really inspiring and nothing like, nothing like those kind of life-altering events to make you realize what really is important, right? That it's all about, you know, building wealth is about interacting and, and being part of community. So tell us a little bit more about Angels of Impact and what you what really resonates for you when you're making decisions about what to invest in. Is it more about what what the company's doing, the founders? What are some of the things that really resonate with you? Yeah. So Angels of Impact is actually um, a community of um, investors, social entrepreneurs, and volunteers. So we offer not just funding, but also technical assistance. And as a woman of color myself, entrepreneur and now investor, 
I really understood firsthand the pains of raising funds, right, as a woman of color. So at the same time, the lived experience of being very resourceful and very resilient to succeed, the commitment to succeed. In fact, I have seen some data somewhere that women actually can have 20% more revenue with 50% less capital. And, you know, and I've seen that firsthand, right? So the kind of uh, women that we focus on, um, initially, I used to invest mainly in tech and, you know, women in tech, because that's the background that I had. But what we found is that with social impact investing, we look for women who are on the ground, who have already invested their own time, effort, and often their own savings into bringing about, um, you know, uh, livelihoods or businesses that actually uplift the whole community. So we like, I like to call them community-based enterprises. Um, and they're generally focused on some of the UN SDGs, like one, no poverty, gender equality, and responsible production and consumption. The way we go about looking and evaluating is kind of what, in a way, what's being called character-based lending, right? So one of the things we do is, first of all, we find those resilient heroes or sheroes uh, on the ground. Um, and then we usually engage them either first in either opening doors, uh, helping them with sales, evaluating how they respond as a business, or engaging them through an incubation program. So right now, I'm actually, we are in, uh, incubating 17 women-led social enterprises, which we should be ending soon. And during this time, we're able to assess not just the business, but also the attitude and the resourcefulness of these women. And, and that generally is kind of the rule of thumb that we've used. And it's so inspiring because every time we come across another Shiro and what she's doing on the ground to elevate and amplify her community, uh, that's what keeps me going with the work at Angels of Impact. Wow, that's wonderful. So I know that we've talked a lot. In fact, we've both done presentations together and separately about some of the problems with the well-worn path of investing in entrepreneurs. What do you see as kind of in terms of that model? And I never know what to call it, but you know, we sometimes call it the venture capital model. Um, mm -hmm. We, you know, you could call it the mainstream model, the traditional model. I don't like calling it those things because it honestly is a very small part of the overall world of investing, but it's a very well-worn path um, for high growth tech companies. Um, mm -hmm. And many entrepreneurs think it's their only option. So what would you mm -hmm. say are some of the problems with that model and how are you trying to, to do your investing in a way that you know, gets, you know, that resolves some of those problems or, you know, addresses some of those problems. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad you asked this question because I'm a fan of your book as well, which really empowers entrepreneurs to learn that they can be empowered to kind of dictate the terms to investors, right? So because everyone just goes debt and equity, but there's a whole wide of instruments that is available out there. Um, for us, because we work in many different countries, sometimes we're very limited because we also do have to look at the regulations in the different countries and what we're allowed to do, right? So, but generally what we try to be is entrepreneur friendly as much as possible. So we usually work with the entrepreneur to figure out what their real needs are, you know, where, where the use of funds are best, um, will make the biggest impact with them and what they can really bear. Um, so we try as much as possible to do entrepreneur friendly, but as you know, we can't be fully bespoke because 
you know, it's quite difficult to manage that as well. But uh, currently we use a wide range of tools like, you know, convertible loans. We're looking to look at more revenue uh, based debt. Um, I'm very intrigued with rede redeemable shares as well. Um, but I think one of the key things that to bear is that, especially when you're trying to work in BIPOC communities, you know, I think people need to be aware, aware that the reason we have marginalized communities is because of the system of finance, which is not broke, but it's fixed, right? You've heard me say that many times <laughs> at Social Ventures Circle, right? So it is not just about shifting money. It's also about how we shift the money, right? So there is the terms that are non-extractive, that are entrepreneur-friendly, but also the how we approach it, right? Like a lot of people tend to go like, oh, it's too risky. In my experience, I've actually found it not to be risky uh, because, you know, these are very resilient and resourceful women and it hasn't been a risky business. But and then they also, as an impact entrepreneur, they add a lot of value in terms of the impact. But traditional investors tend not to give a value on that impact. Um, so it's, again, looking at what is the impact you want to create and putting a value on that and therefore not really looking at it as a concessionary rate, but really right-sizing it for the entrepreneur. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and so wonderful that you have both perspectives. You are a successfully exited entrepreneur as well as an investor. What advice do you have from... You know, when you stand in the shoes of an um, of an entrepreneur, what advice would you have for those individuals in terms of talking to investors? We see a lot of times there's this myth about what an investor is, what an investor looks like, what they might want to hear. Uh, it takes kind of the you know taking the mystery out of what the other side's perspective is, and then also on the other hand when an investor is looking for an entrepreneur that they might want to invest in, if you could say one thing to each of those groups, what would advice would you give them about knowing the other side of the equation? Yeah. So for the entrepreneur, like you said, you know, demystify myth about investors, right? So, um, the power balance is has to be shifted. The investors also have to be very mindful of this, especially if you're coming in as an impact investor, right? Don't come in with this um, money as giving you that power, but rather the entrepreneur is the one with the power for making change, right? And the entrepreneur needs to recognize that as well. Now, that's a piece of advice. Sometimes it's easy to say, but when you're in a position of trying to raise money, you can feel quite desperate sometimes, right? To just take money from anywhere. But I would really like to advise entrepreneurs to do your homework um, and not just take money, but take smart money. Look for those investors that care about the impact that you're making and would give some value to that impact. And look for those investors who are truly committed to systems change and um, are not coming in from a very extractive point of view. In fact, I, I, I like the process used at RSF Social Finance, and I've been figuring out how to do that in, in the work that we do as well, where they get the investor and the entrepreneur at the same table to decide on the terms. And every time an investor wants a little bit more, they actually get to learn how much less the entrepreneur or what is the gift the entrepreneur has to take maybe 
pay their people less or pay the community less in order for the investor to extract more out of the deal. And what I've heard is that in the end, the investors actually very, very quickly come down on their rates because they truly understand exactly how the money flows. So that's kind of my, my advice is, you know, have it in a way where be choosy, <laughs> be choosy, but have a conversation that ends up having more of a win-win agreement. And what about advice for investors who, who agree with what you're saying? They want to do good with their money, but they don't even know where to get started. What would you advise them? Um, I would advise them to actually look at um, successful models that exist because often I find that, especially like at Social Venture Circle, um, a lot of people get this idea of let's shift, let's bring resources to BIPOC communities, let's shift the system of change. Uh, and then they try to go direct, but then they use their old traditional thinking again, which ends up being very um, onerous and very sometimes bad feelings that are left behind as well. At the same time, there's so many BIPOC funds that are happening and there's so many BIPOC intermediaries happening. So why not learn and, and invest through them, you know, before you decide to go and jump in directly? You know, Common Future, for example, just launched their character-based lending. You know, you've got Native Women Lead. You've got so many groups that are doing amazing things, right? So that would be my advice to them is actually... You know, the way Namaka Akbo, who, who I totally admire with her work around restorative investing, she says that lots of experimentation has to happen before we actually figure out what works. But why not experiment with the ones with the lived experience, right? If we want to make the change, do it together, not for. Yeah. And what are your, what are your thoughts about how, what are opportunities that have been presented by the, by the worldwide pandemic, are there some lessons or silver linings that we can take away from this global pandemic and bring it into the things I know on, on our end, we've seen a lot of people really realize how much they care about their local businesses uh, and don't want to see them shuttered, care more about looking at local investing. What, what, do you see anything that that we can look forward to or a cautionary tale maybe about what we what the results of the pandemic will be for us going forward? Yeah, that's that's actually a very good question and something I've been pondering about a lot myself um, because I witnessed myself how the pandemic with all of us locked up, um, what happened with George Floyd, I think became more visible. If everyone was busy doing their own things, it would have just been another, because there, may, there were many George Floyd incidences already going viral on the internet, right? So I think there was something about the pandemic that made us slow down and listen and, and, and therefore want change, you know, uh, things that are happening around climate chaos. Um, so I do want to believe that there are actually more investors that are interesting in, interested in investing in system change. You hear words like uh, impact investing for racial justice. You hear words like restorative investing, reparative investing, regenerative investing. So these things I find very hopeful because I think the more we flow money uh, to systems change, because impact investing in the past with this do good, do well, I felt did not really look at systems change, but just impact very superficially. 
Um, so that, that, that gives me a lot of hope. The downside I do also see is that we've also seen the rich get richer during the pandemic <laughs> and tech companies get really, really rich during the pandemic. Um, we've seen people use their money to go up to space, <laughs> you know. So I, I really hope that we are moving towards a world that we want to build back better. But I do also realize we are in a world where we have both happening at the same time. So um, I would like to encourage more people to help build that better world um, because the other one will still exist. But I think if we all focused on building a better world, I think that will give it the, the hope for hap actually happening. Oh, that's so beautiful. I think you're so right that not everything is turning in the right direction, but there are lots of things that are. And if we just keep focusing on those and trying to build those, that's a huge, uh, a huge part of getting of creating the world we want. So I guess one last question I want to ask you is, um, you know, we love to hear specific stories. So do you mm -hmm. have a specific story of an entrepreneur that you found out about um, in the work that you do that just got you really excited and, and, you know, what it looked like to get to know that entrepreneur and to decide to invest. And, and maybe there's some learnings from that for other entrepreneurs of, you know, what can make them really compelling for an investor like you? Yeah, so for me, because um, my focus a lot is on upliftment of women in indigenous communities, uh, the story that I like to tell is of a female entrepreneur um, who was a daughter, who is a daughter of a weaver herself. So she came from a community which was actually very, very poor because they used to make their living from weaving and weaving was dying, right? No, everyone wanted modern clothes and modern stuff. So they couldn't make a, a living from weaving. And her mother wanted so desperately for her daughter not to get thrown into the throngs of poverty that she saved up to send her daughter to school in the city, which everyone criticized her because you don't send a young girl to the city in those, you know, in, in communities like that. Um, but this girl went on, she got her degree in, um, in business and what she did was she returned to her village and she started a business to take their silk weaving international. And she started about like being very, very, <laughs> very resilient. She went up to somebody who was buying silk from the usual uh, bigger companies and said, would you buy from my village? And they said, you know, if you can come back with 35 really good quality scarves, I might consider it. And she went back to the village and she told everybody this was really important. And they came up with 35 amazing scarves. The person was flawed and she got her first deal. And so by the time I met her, she had already a pretty decent sized business. And she re all she needed was some capital to expand her production facilities. Um, and she was a really great fit because she had, she was women led. Um, she had a model that helped to uplift her community. Um, and she impacted 450 weavers in her village. And she was very interesting because she initially asked for more money and we had the money to give her. And then later on, she felt that she could bear less. So she took less and she returned it within the agreed time frame. And she, she was one of the stories that proved that women are great investments and really very resourceful. That's terrific. What a great story. Thank you so much for coming on, joining us and sharing all of your wisdom and stories. It's, it's just heart 
warming to know that people like you exist in the world. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Really, it, it makes me um, very inspired that you are even willing to listen to the story, interested in listening to the story and have this amazing podcast. I think it would really help a lot of people to, to emulate and do the same. Yes. Thank you so much for the work you do in the world, Lina. And thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you. Do you have any questions for our securities lawyers and capital raising experts? Call the podcast hotline and leave us a message at 866-552-7726, extension 5. You can also send other inquiries to podcast at jennycasson.com. We'd love to hear from you. Music for the Capital Inside podcast is still searching by Damon Criswell via Audio Hero. Thank you for listening to Capital Insight with Jenny Casson and Michelle Timish. Until next time. <laughs>